A Q-U-E-E-N who needs no king because she only wants one. An independent noble, especially when love comes. Hello and welcome to Just Talk Educational Equity, the podcast about social justice and how it relates to everything education. To lead off, we are listening to Che Askew Sankara. He's a student at St. Louis Community College. He is sharing his poem titled Q-U-E-E-N. I just want a queen. No, I just want a Q-U-E-E-N. A woman who holds her head high as the sun rises and sets depending on her eyes and looks at herself and her history as quality, just as she looks at mine, because I'm her forever, not her man. A woman who was understanding and a unique to the point we need no mansions, we anoint our hands as though it was always to our liking. She's a queen who shows excitement when she talks and her passion Her walk is never stagnant, she imagines so she creates everything in her mind. And yes, her mind is never lacking in empathy, or energy for that matter. A queen. A queen. A Q-U-E-E-N who needs no king because she only wants one. An independent noble, especially when love comes. I was once one kid who felt dependent on a queen, but a queen doesn't need that. She must be bossy and give good feedback because I'm not famous, I'm local. I want a queen who is quality, understanding, excited, empathetic, and noble, because that's how I want myself to be. I want to be your king. I am Tony Neal, the host of Just Talk, and today's topic is birth of a change agency. My co-host for today is... Hi, I'm Deborah Bullman. It's nice to be here with you, Tony. Thanks, Deb. Uh, Can you speak a little bit about the poem that we just heard? When I was thinking about the podcast we were doing today and this topic about the birth of a change agency... This student was one of the first people I thought of in my own work and how I feel like going through social justice training with educational equity really shaped me as a teacher. And Che was one of my students, and he was always very engaged. His voice was always very present, but I felt as if when um, I became the kind of teacher for whom social justice topics and issues about race and identity were more comfortable for me to talk about in the classroom, it just gave space for somebody like Che to bring his whole self into the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so when I was thinking about a student's voice that could open up for us and and bring us to this topic, he, he was one of the first people I thought about. Well, thank you for bringing Che uh, into the studio with us. I can see the excitement in your face. Uh, certainly, uh, I'm sure you're very proud of the, this young man. Uh, talk to me about some of the other students' creative writing. This is probably a part of a, his creative writing uh, project. Well, he actually wrote this, um, I think, just outside of a class assignment. He just is the kind of person who is always thinking about creative ways to express himself. He's a musician. Um, We'll add a link at the website so that you can see uh, some of his work. But he does art and visual arts and music, and he records and creates beats. Um, But the for a student like that can be a classroom can be an unfriendly and unwelcoming place. Certainly. And um, <laughs> when I recognize that for all of my students, I need to take them who as who they are as a whole person, as their total vision and their total voice in order for us to have any kind of learning that's going to be effective in a classroom. It's the kind of thing that gave a student like Che the the freedom to 
be successful. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, I, I do understand that. And certainly you know this as well as I do, that part of a student being successful in the classroom is relationships, having a very positive relationship with their teacher and also feeling that they have a sense of belonging. You know, I belong here. I, I have a sense of family here. And certainly um, this is probably, I'm sure, what you created for many students in your time as a classroom teacher. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Again, it was a lot of my social justice training that really helped me to understand the importance of that and that that wasn't an extra add-on that I did or something that I did because it made me feel good to connect to students, but it was an essential component for student success in a classroom. Yeah, very good, very good. Students' voice is always welcome. So before we get into our deep dive, how about a little icebreaker here? When did you know that you wanted to be an educator, and when did you know that you wanted to do social justice work within the field of education? Well, that's a big question. It's kind of two questions there. Yes, it is. I first uh, realized I wanted to be a teacher when I had gone off to college and I had studied journalism. And then I had a teacher from my past who really recognized that I was a teacher at heart, and he invited me to help him co-direct this play, Bob Botel, hmm. whom uh, I still love. I still stay in touch with him. He was my eighth grade teacher. And he asked me to come back and help direct this play, and all I had to do with, was work with students for two weeks, and I realized, boom, this is wow. it. Wow. The reward of working with students and you know, it was just, I, I just felt so energized by that whole experience. I just put everything else to the side and I said, this is it. Teaching right. is for me. Awesome. How about awesome. you? Yeah, well, I spent a little time as a high school principal uh, for a charter school, actually. And I have to say that was one of the most rewarding jobs. Just seeing students thrive and move on and go on to college and higher education and do great things. And still today, I get letters and phone calls from many of my students talking about their successes. And it just brings great joy to, to hear and see all that they're doing. Yeah, yeah there's nothing like it. Um, those, those young people and, and being part of their journey, it's very rewarding. Right. So we are going to talk about the birth of a change agency today, and I am get to interview you, Tony, because you are the author of this change agency that we're going to talk about. Well, certainly thank you for that, Deb. Um, so I thought we could start off just why don't you tell us a little bit, explaining to us what this change agency is, Educational Equity Consultants. Okay, certainly. Well, Educational Equity Consultants creates a very safe environment for people of color and whites to heal from the hurts of racism. EEC, as we refer to it, builds the capacity of individuals, schools, and other organizations to address racism in ways that enable all people to reclaim their inherent intelligence and nobility. Uh, actually, EEC specializes in diversity training that identifies and eradicates systems of oppression that damage our workplaces and schools. We've been around since 2001. EEC has been the leader in diversity training for schools and companies in numerous states across the country. And we have, EEC has equipped more than 3,000 educators with the knowledge to first uncover oppression in schools and then combat it 
by way of effective communication techniques that promote respect and empowerment among students and staff. That is a huge mission. Yes, it is. And a deep and complex uh, statement that describes the work you do. Yes. But it's deep and complex work. <laughs> yes, we like to say that it's uh, heart work. It's hard work, H-A-R-D, but it's also heart work, H-E-A-R-T. Great. I, I, when I've worked with you, that is certainly how I've experienced it. Now, it's highly collaborative work. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about the people that you've worked with and sort of how this organization first generated? Okay, certainly. Uh, at the time that I was principal at uh, East St. Louis High School, uh, I should say SIU East St. Louis uh, mm. Charter School, and there was another gentleman uh, by the name of Dr. Peter Wilson. He was uh, adjunct professor in the School of Education there at SIUE. And at the time, Dr. Polite, who was dean of the School of Education, asked Peter to write what is called a pork barrel grant. Now, don't ask me where that name comes from, but in short, it's a grant that tags on to a much larger initiative. And Peter uh, wrote like a two-page grant, and it tagged on to something that was uh, much larger. And, of course, we got the grant. And so it's kind of a backwards planning type of uh, grant. You get the grant, and then you really plan what you're going to do and how you're going to move the initiative forward. So Peter got the grant and contacted me and said, hey, I got, uh, I think it was like twenty-five dollars or $30,000, and we need to do some planning around creating a social justice-type program. And so together, we spent a summer just thinking through and doing a little research what that would look like. After we put together a framework, we did some um, what I call focus groups in the Cahokia area, in the Belleville area, and a number of other areas in the East St. Louis uh, area, just to make sure that we were kind of on the right track. And along that time, we met another gentleman by the name of Dr. Phil Hunsberger, who had just come down to the area from Rockford, Illinois. And he was working with five school districts in the East St. Louis area. And so that gave us an inroads into the school to kind of test pilot the program, if you will. And it was very successful, very successful. And Peter decided that he wanted to uh, continue after the grant had ended. And schools were very willing to uh, pay for service, if you will. And so we started the professional development models that have been in a number of schools. A year after all of that, another person came on board by the name of Dr. Billy uh, Mayo. And she brings a lot of value added to the program. And so for a long time, it was the four of us uh, doing educational equity work uh, throughout the United States, but mostly in the Midwest. Uh, we did some work up in Virginia area, in California, and in a few other areas. And now we have about 19 associates, and we are all over. Uh, we have a book out. So, yes, yes. I, yeah, that's something I want to talk about. We'll make sure we put a link to that, too, on oh, the website. Definitely, definitely. And uh, we'll take a look at, uh, talk about that a little bit. I was thinking about that today. Yeah, yeah. So what year was that, that this that was, was going? That uh, was two, around 2001, 2003, in that particular uh, time frame, mm -hmm. certainly, yeah. So you've probably seen your own work evolving since that time. The conversation around race and racism is just 
keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it seems like more and more essential as we go along. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. A lot of it has to do with what's going on in the what what I call the wide world. So what's going on on the political scene and the social scene. And uh, I think we will always be in business because there's always work to do. And while our focus has been looking at race and racism, and of course we know that race is a social construct, however, racism uh, is very much what divides us. Uh, So our focus has been looking at that in, in education, but we know that there are a number of other areas of oppression, sexism, heterosexism, classism, ageism, uh, religion, mm-hmm. we can look at all those different areas. Uh, so we'll always always be in business. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you about was how you settled on the name educational equity. There are so many terms that we use when we talk about this sort of education. We talk about diversity training. We talk about anti-racism training. We talk about social justice. You decided on the term educational equity. Right. Well, our focus, uh, probably 95% of our work now is in the educational area. We have done work in law enforcement, in the religious sector, and in the medical field. But our focus has been education. So we wanted education to connect. And then equity does not necessarily mean equal. And so we wanted to make sure that we got that out to the public that it's about equity. What you might need is not maybe what I need, and what I need, you might not need, but we both have needs, and so we want to make sure that we are meeting the needs of the students and and the faculty that we work with in the schools. Um, That's one of the things that, as a teacher, is really hard to grasp, that I am doing my best, I'm following all the best practices in terms of the delivery of content, Right. And I can do that without ever really taking into account what an individual student might be needing. Right, right. And I'm sure uh, many people have seen the, uh, I guess, the video that goes around on the Internet with the three young men on uh, step stools looking over the fence. Yes. And, you know, you can just kind of glean from that particular visual, if you will, mm-hmm. as to what equity really is. You know, mm-hmm. there's one gentleman that can't see over the fence because it's, he got the same stool that everyone else got, but that's not what he needed. He needed something higher in order to look over the fence. And right, so. right. Uh, I I like that visual and that has helped me at times when I've thought about equity. Now I've recently seen some critique of that very visual <laughs> that says this is just an illustration of white supremacy. We're still keep, keeping people outside the fence. Yeah, well, how about tear, tearing down the fence? How about tearing down the fence? Yeah. yeah. Right. Why do we need the fence? Yes. Yeah. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what good social justice training is comprised of? How do you know when you're putting together a plan for your training what needs to be included? Right. Well, certainly we want to look at what are the oppressive areas uh, that are really driving some of the some of the oppression. And so we look at privilege. You know, we tackle that. We do a deep dive on looking at privilege. We use a lot of uh, Barbara Love's work um, Peggy McIntosh's work and uh, Joan Olson's work. And so uh, our focus is on self first. We like to say that our training is on parallel tracks. So we look at stance. Stance is self. What does it mean to show up as, you know, as a black man um, 
What does it mean to show up with my religion and my class and, and all the isms that are a part of, or all the identities that are a part of who I am? What does it mean to show up and just be present? What does that mean? That's the stance piece. And then we get into strategies. You know, most educators want the strategies right away. And I, I'm guilty. Uh, I haven't arrived, just agreed to go as <laughs> one of our uh, partners who, uh, often says, I'm guilty of that. I always wanted strategies for my teachers, and teachers always wanted strategies to help students, and that's very important. But I have to change my heart first, and in changing my heart, then sometimes my strategies will change. And so we, we do a deep dive in understanding that. We also do a deep dive in looking at what is internalized racism. So internalized racism is any time a group of people is systematically oppressed they will internalize that oppression and act that oppression out on themselves and people who look like them. So there are things that uh, people of color uh, do to one another uh, based on racism, based on the manifestations of racism. And so we take a deep dive in looking at, you know, what is it that we can do? How can we clear up our side of the track or our uh, two legs of a table? We often give a visual of a table being held up by four legs. And two of those legs are the legs of targeting and the legs of internalized uh, racism. And the other two are the legs of privilege and internalized superiority. And so we are responsible, and I say we because I'm African-American male, uh, we are responsible for working on the side uh, where there's people of color and doing our work, while our white counterparts, they work on their side of the table. And then we come together and work as allies uh, to eradicate uh, this oppression and hopefully level the playing field. So that's just a little bit of our training. We do caucus work, so we work in different configurations because we know that we have to be separate. Uh, we use the metaphor of the orchestra. Uh, and if you ever know how orchestras operate, oftentimes they practice separately in the individual sections before they come together uh, and make this beautiful music. And so we separate in order to do our work, and then we come back together um, in a way that moves us forward together. When I've done the training with you and... You know, I've been with you for over 10 years going through the training with uh, newer teachers in my school district. And so I, I was able to experience it from the inside multiple times. And one of the things that I learned from that stance piece was how very important it was when I showed up in my classroom to name for my students my stance. Mm -hmm. Yes. And as a, as a white woman, I have the privilege to ignore my stance. I, and that, in fact, is, you know, how white superiority continues, is that we pretend that we're the neutral party and we don't have to name or recognize our position. And when I would do that, I felt like uh, students right away realized they were experiencing something that they needed. Yeah, that's that's very hard for a, a lot of teachers. Um, and our training is a deep dive. It's not a surface training. Mm -hmm. And many times individuals go through and they, what I would call, get it after the training, maybe weeks, months, and sometimes years after. Years. I could think of a lot of resistance initially when we got started, um, and particularly from our white counterparts. Because it was feelings of guilt and shame and blame, and those places are okay to visit, but not to live. You know, I think we all go through those particular feelings at time, at times. 
However, that can immobilize individuals. And so we need individuals on the battlefield with us. And so we need everyone engaged. And we realize that it's a journey for everyone. And so, yes, that could you know, be devastating sometimes for individuals. It was useful. So some of the things that we have had conversation about in that caucus work is, yes, acknowledging those feelings of guilt, shame, blame. And instead of patting myself on the back, okay, I'm done. I feel guilt, shame, and blame for the oppression that white people have perpetrated in history. And instead of feeling like, okay, that's good. Now I'm, now I'm all better. Instead, to recognize this is an impetus. This is an impetus for correction. This is an impetus to move forward and heal. Yeah. both internally from that guilt, blame, shame, and also to heal the oppression, to work with our allies and knocking that table down. Right, exactly. And it's also important for our white uh, counterparts to go out and share and, and teach and help other whites get it. Because many times what happens is that we become the teachers, and I say we, African-Americans or people of color, black and brown people, become the teachers. And that's very exhausting. It's very frustrating. It's tiring. Uh, it's fatiguing. And so we need our white counterparts to go out and teach other whites. Um, that's exactly the approach that I felt really empowered with. When I was doing some social justice training within a faculty, and when I said racism is a problem for white people to address, it was interesting to me that that statement that seems so self-evident is one where I got the most pushback. Really? Yes. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. How did you handle that pushback? We talked, we spoke, I tried to listen and see, you know, where this person was coming from. And, uh, you know, she continued to participate and stay engaged. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we were able to maintain our relationship and, and, and move forward in that. Yeah. Many times it's, it's easier to ease into the conversations mm. by article reviews, some articles that are mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily heavy articles, uh, book reviews, uh, going to different talks. Uh, things of that nature. That's that's one way to kind of ease people into the conversation before you do a deep dive, because doing a deep dive can be very um, can be very scary sometimes. It can be yeah, quite frightening. Right. What are some of the common obstacles you see to people who are when you're inviting them into this conversation? What kind of obstacles do you encounter? Well, I think some people take on it's not me. You know, it's. It's hard to understand that racism is rooted in a system, a structure that has been intentionally architectured to hold some people down while others uh, move forward. And so it's the, it's the me game. People take on sometimes, I don't want to say all people, some people take on it's not me, I'm, I'm not racist, I'm not sexist. Um, but when you start to look at structures and you are a part of a structure, then you can understand that, okay, I can see you know, where I need to do some work myself and how I can help change the structure. And that's the hardest part is getting individuals to understand the structure because no matter how many times we say it and you read about it and you hear about it, it always comes back to, but I'm not like that. And 
you know. Oh, yeah. We, we're laughing because we have had this very conversation about me. Um, and, right, I started off, you know, 12 years ago or 15 years ago in our first training, and I'm like, yes, I am the good white person that does not feel racism. And so I'm so excited to get involved in this and then went, oh, dang, look at yeah. me. I'm the fish swimming in the water. Right. And it was it was a big aha. It was really a rebirth for me and my identity and understanding of who I am and how to contribute to society. Yeah. Well, we certainly appreciate the work that you are doing and have done and are continuing in a number of different veins. And I'm so happy that you are retired and being and able to really do this full time. Uh, I retired you know. from teaching, but I started a new career. Yeah, well, we won't say we won't use the word retire. I would say redirected. Or, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's what yeah. I'm doing. Yeah, redirected. So, how about you, Tony? How did you learn and get to the point where you were ready to do this sort of leadership? I mean, where? What kind of talk about your education and your background and what brought you to this? Yeah, point? well, I'm certainly a, a graduate of University City High School and went on to Morehouse College and um, Morehouse. A pretty prominent historically black college. Mm-hmm. I happened to be there when uh, Dexter King was there, Dr. King's son, oh, and Lerone Bennett's son, and Abernathy's son. So I was right in the middle of uh, a lot of activist kids. And we would find ourselves often in the hallways, at the lunch tables, uh, out in the courtyards, having these courageous conversations. And it was just phenomenal. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Mays uh, was uh, often on our campus. Uh, Daddy King, the father of Martin Luther King, was often there on our campus. And so we had these huge icons, what I call gentle giants, that were surrounded us. And you couldn't help but just kind of feel like there's something that I have to do uh, based on all that we have read about these individuals and what they have they had done. And so... You kind of take on that guilt of, okay, I got to get busy. I got to finish my education. I got to get busy and see where I can can work. So I left there and I went on to uh, Washington University and did graduate work there in clinical psychology under uh, Dr. Bob Williams at that time. And uh, I've had just a plethora of different jobs um, from working in substance abuse prevention and mental health and working in education as a teacher, as a principal. And you know, that was kind of how I have got, got started. My grandfather also was an activist down in a little town called Bryan, Texas. So I have pictures as early as four and five years old, marching with signs. I, at that time, I probably didn't even know why I was marching, but my grandfather had, oh, a, that's awesome. had me out there with him, marching with signs. Uh, he was very active in the NAACP. So was always marching you know, because of something that was not right for people of color. So it's it's kind of in my DNA. It's it's kind of embedded in the fabric of who I am to do this work. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, you're standing yeah. on the shoulders of some giants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's lovely. So how have you, so this has been decades that you've been doing this work. Yes. How have you seen the work change over the years? Well, I like to think that more individuals are on the journey, and that's one. I think we have made some inroads in some sectors, and then there are other times that I feel that we have had a setback. You know, mm-hmm. I think what's going on politically right now has kind of caused a setback. And uh, I think hopefully the setback is a setup to move forward and 
you know, I think that that will happen as we continue to do the work. And certainly, I think a lot of work can be done in various sectors, certainly the education area, right. because that's, you know, where we do the work. And I have seen that many institutions, in terms of educational institutions, are willing to come to the table now. They're willing to uh, invest in what is needed uh, to make sure that all students are feeling uh, like they belong and that mm-hmm. they can make it. Um, what kind of political things are happening right now that you think are moving this conversation forward? Well, anytime you talk about cutting funding uh, in education and cutting funding to entitled pro- entitlement programs to um, put towards building walls and not, you know, building bridges or constructing bridges or uh, and you can look at some of the things that, in particular, the head of the Department of Education, uh, federal, um, has said about mm-hmm. schools and things of that nature. Um, yeah, so I, I think those are some of the things that need improvement that are going wrong. Well, I, one of the things that I I know there have been some surveys that have been done recently that are showing that incidents of hate speech are up. Oh yes, in public and in particular in schools, and. I think that has really renewed people's urgency in schools to address this and to try to create more equitable environments for all students. At the same time, the political climate that maybe empowers that, I am hopeful that that is a backlash that indicates that there's been progress. Yeah, I think we have to remain hopeful. You know, if we don't remain hopeful, what do we have to look forward to? And how do we uh, help our students, our kids, who are going to be our leaders uh, tomorrow? So I, we definitely have to remain hopeful. I would totally agree that some of the things that we're seeing in schools is a backlash to what's going on in the wider world. And I guess individuals are feeling very comfortable in saying things that are very hurtful and doing things that are very hurtful. Uh, we can not only we can look outside of schools. I mean, look at all the shootings that are taking places and and churches and synagogues and just various area the areas the mass shootings and things and what drives individuals to think and do some of the uh, just hurtful things that are taking place. I think it just reinforces for us in the education sector how important our work is in this area. Because if we are not putting out this message of how essential it is that all people recognize each other's inherent dignity and that we're willing to cooperate and respect and, and, and be partners in building a positive society and culture that works for everyone, then those messages out in society or the media, those are so conflicted. and. Yeah. And Absolutely. so for, in school, I think it just really behooves us to try to create that sort of island where where things are, we hope, the way that the rest of society can follow us. Yes, yes. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I would totally agree with that. You know, and I, I don't know exactly what the answer is. I think there are a number of answers on a number of different fronts. And if everyone is is trying to change or make change in their particular space, I think we will eventually affect the wider world. 
but you know, sometimes individuals say, well, what's the answer? And I don't know it, that there is one answer. There are a number of answers. You know, we talk about the achievement gap, but there's the healthcare gap, you know, there's the uh, financial gap, there's the housing gap. So there are tons of gaps that we need to address, and most all of them affect education. You know, if I'm staying in sub-housing, and I don't have, you know, adequate food or I don't have adequate lighting for homework or heat and, you know, things of that nature that affects how I operate in school. That was one of the things that was hard for me when I was looking back at my teaching career and, and looking back at really four decades of work and thinking in terms of social justice and equity, it, it was discouraging to see how much work there is to remain. And I... There was a part of me that sort of felt like, gosh, what have I been doing all this time if the <laughs> society is still so broken? And then when we look at thinking locally, what is my sphere of influence? Right. Then we can say, okay, we, we moved a touch here, we moved a touch there. And, you know, these individual people had their lives, you know, moved in some positive way by being part of this movement, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, when you look at your students, like uh, the individual young man that read the poem in the very beginning, Che, I mean, you can see just steps of success. And certainly there are tons of other students, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. that you had a positive effect on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But sometimes if we keep our eye on the small steps that we've made, and certainly I can think of students of mine that have done well, and I just always kind of reflect on um, those students. In fact, I usually carry a, a couple of the letters that I've gotten with me. I usually all have them with me all the time, you know, because sometimes you just need to stop and reflect, okay, this is why I'm doing the work. Or when you're having one of those down days, those are the pick-me-uppers that, that help. Right. We've talked about this before, about how do you stay uh, positive, encouraged, and engaged in the work. And I talked about how you know, sometimes I'll just lean on my privilege and just choose to disengage and how I'm trying to learn that I need to develop that stamina to be able to keep moving forward and helping and be engaged with society, moving in a positive direction. Um, And so I, as a white person, you know, I can, I'm sort of trying to recognize how I engage with the world in that way. As an African-American man, you There are other ways that you have to deal with I don't have the advantage of disengaging. I'm always engaging, Mm -hmm. uh, engaged. Mm -hmm. I think it was James Baldwin that said, as long as my skin color is seen as a weapon, I will always be armed. And so I think every day as I step out of the front door, I'm armed. And what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Am I going to come home in the evening? Uh, Am I going to live the next hour? Uh, What does that really mean? And so, you know, Try to stay positive. I surround myself with positive people. I read positive books. My office is decorated with a lot of positive sayings. Uh, every place I turn in my car, in my mirror, in my bathroom, in my home, there are positive sayings and quotes and pictures. Um, so that's one way, listening to certain podcasts, listening to positive music, um, things that can pick you up. And then you have your circle uh, what I call a healing circle or healing community, and those are individuals that you surround yourself by that you can have courageous conversations with. And that's always a, a place to really go and really vent sometimes. Sometimes you want to scream or stomp or punch something, and you know you want to do it in an environment that's not going to land you behind bars. Right. And so uh, that's what you have to do sometimes. Yeah.
In our final segment, we share what we are reading or viewing or listening in the world that is informing our social justice journey. So, Deborah, what is new with you? What are you reading or listening to? I have been spending a lot of time listening to a podcast called Seeing White, S-E-E-I-N-G, Seeing White, is a season from the podcast Seen on Radio by John Bewin, S-C-E-N-E. So he's playing with that, you know, with that word seen and seeing. He does 14 episodes on, as a white person, learning about what it means to be white in the world. And trying to uncover that which is invisible to so many of us as white people living living this way. And he just progresses all the way through from the history of the establishment of the concept of white into um, affirmative action for white people and all all the way through and his own story growing up in a town and what sort of... Things were covered up there that he was never aware of in this small town. Hmm. He works at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. And uh, it's it's not the kind of thing you can binge. You can't just sit and listen to all episodes at once because wow. it really does lead, for me, it really led me on a journey of reflecting hmm. on my own identity as a white person. And um, he posts a study guide online, which I just discovered wow. recently, which has these really cool questions connected. You could either talk about the podcast overall, or you could look at each episode. And for someone who's looking for something, you know, they're working with uh, white allies to think more deeply about their identity, this this is a really great one. He uh, also interviews Dr. Chenjirai Kumanyika with each one, who sort of helps him as a black man sort of see himself as a white man. It's a really cool, um, really cool resource. Uh, it's definitely stimulated my interest, so oh, I good. will probably uh, tune in. Give us the name of that again. It's... Uh, the name of the podcast is Seen on Radio, and the season that they um, de- dedicated to this is called Seeing White. It was their second season, so it was just last year they recorded it. Now they're doing one on men. Okay. And so Good. I haven't started listening to that yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Great, great, great. Well, thank you for that. This has been Tony Neal, your host. And I'm Deborah Bullman, today's guest host and the podcast producer and director. With Just Talk, Educational Equity, we appreciate that you joined us for this episode and invite you to share your comments, questions, and suggestions on our website at EEC, that's the number four, justice.com. That's EEC, the number four, justice.com. And leave us an email there on our contact page. We're looking for student writing on social justice topics to include in our next episode. So contact us at the website if you have an interest in contributing. You can also see video of today's writer reading their piece along with more interview footage. That's EEC, number four, justice.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please find us on iTunes and leave us a rating. You can help people find us that way and we appreciate your support. Just Talk has been brought to you by Educational Equity Consultants, a company that provides training to help schools and organizations eliminate oppressive attitudes, behaviors, and policy. Recording, editing, music, and logo done by Alvin Zamudio. Thank you for listening to Just Talk Educational Equity. We'd be glad to hear from you. If you're a teacher or school leader, a student, a parent, or a community member concerned about social justice, please remember Just Talk. Just talk.
that was coming. <laughs>